My guest this morning is uh, one of the most distinguished of all American historians, Professor John Hope Franklin, who teaches history at the University of Chicago but is president of the American Historical Society and uh, Association and was recently honored in that a chair, the John Hope Franklin Chair, was established at Fisk University, which I believe is the first of all the black universities. And more of this, of course, from Dr. Franklin. And I think this is a good hour in which to find out about Dr. Franklin's own beginnings and, and uh, his thought, and as well as discussing a quite remarkable series of lectures he offered, ironically called the Jefferson Lectures, and it's about the story of race in America, racial equality in America, and is, I discover in reading it, an explosive and revelatory book, and your Chicago Press publishes of it. All this within the next hour with my guest, John Hope Franklin, in a moment after this message. I was thinking Dr. Franklin, John Hope Franklin, the name, and I was playing a recording of one of the most intellectual of all Americans, W.B. Du Bois, whom you knew. Yes. And uh, he tells of meeting someone named John Hope. Suppose we, the background of this, uh, well, you know it better than I do before. He had been, this is when, he had been to, uh, he had been to Harvard, to Europe, he, was, he wrote Souls of Black Folk. He was distinguished now. And there was a big battle going on in the black world involving the NAACP and the magazine, which he edited for so many years, Crisis. Yes. Of course, um, this was very far into his career. He'd already been the editor of Crisis since 1910. And it was in the early 1930s that uh, Du Bois became really discouraged about the future of black people in this country, and uh, he thought that uh, there was perhaps no real hope for integration. And he began to think in terms of real of separation, and that's when he comes to the parting of the ways with uh, the officials of the NAACP, and he goes to Atlanta University. He returns. He'd been there earlier, and he'd been associated with his old friend, John Hope. And he, then he comes back uh, later, and he tells about it in, in, this, uh, in his autobiography on record. And so, Dr. Franklin, he, this is quite remarkable, he mentions a man named his good friend, John Hope. Yes, John Hope had been his, one of his best friends, perhaps since the Niagara Movement back in 1905, so that this was sort of his fallback position, shall we say, in 1933, uh, when he went there. Now... Uh, meanwhile, um, even before he went to Atlanta the first time, when he was looking around for opportunities, he, of course, became very friendly with John Hope, who was a young professor, uh, a young teacher, uh, who had uh, gone from Roger Williams University to Morehouse College around the turn of the century. Now, my connection with uh, John Hope is the fact that in 1897 at Roger Williams University in Nashville, Tennessee, that's now a defunct university, uh, John Hope had in his class my mother and my father. My mother being a young girl from West Tennessee, uh, Brownsville, and my father being a young man from the Indian Territory. Mm. Uh, he had uh, descended from slaves who were brought out there with the Chickasaw Indians back at the time of removal in 1833. Uh, my mother and my father sort of fell in love with John Hope. He was a remarkable man, very attractive, very uh, warm and friendly, and uh, very uh, much the, 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 com the committed and dedicated teacher. And they thought so well of him that... Uh, they said after they were engaged and were married that if they ever had a second son, they would name him John Hope. Uh, so uh, I suppose, fortunately for me anyway, they had a second son, and uh, they named him John Hope. I've been carrying around for all these years uh, uh, the name of a, of a remarkable man, and it was it was really a, quite a both a burden and an inspiration, particularly when I'd go to a place like Atlanta, 
And they would say, well, what are you doing with the name of John Hope? And you didn't even go to Morehouse College or Atlanta University. And I would say that, no, I went to Fisk. And that's where Du Bois went, of course, to college back in the 1880s. In his uh, oral autobiography on this recording, he speaks of going to Fisk. He'd been to Harvard for a moment. And Fisk, he became aware, he said, of black people yes, yes. in Fisk. And that's Fisk, where you went. That's to, where I went. And that's I went, where the chair uh, after you is named right now. Yes, I went to Fisk in 1931. Uh, I was not going to be a historian even. I went to primarily to study uh, and to complete my college work before going on to law school. I had no, and I thought that college was sort of an <coughs> irrelevancy at that point because I was so anxious to go to law school to, com to complete my law studies and then to return to uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma to practice law with my father, whom I greatly admired. And all I wanted to do in life was to, was to be a lawyer and practice with my father. Um, but of course, uh, when I was at, at Fisk, I came across a remarkable teacher, the greatest teacher I've ever had, uh, perhaps the greatest man I've ever encountered, and that was Professor Theodore S. Currier, who himself was a, a young man at the time, uh, a graduate of Harvard, uh, a New England Yankee, one might say, and who taught at uh, Fisk. Uh, he was to teach at Fisk for almost 50 years, but he was just a young man in his 20s, late 20s at the time. And uh, I came under his influence, and I was never the same again. The excitement of the study of history was so much that I was overwhelmed by it. It answered questions which I had not been able to answer. It, uh, it gave me insights which I had never experienced before. And, uh, and uh, within uh, a year or two, I realized that I didn't want to be a lawyer, I wanted to be a historian. You know, you're describing something that's very exciting, hardly written about, and also this, these lectures of yours in a moment, hardly written about and quite astonishing. That Fisk University, the early mm. black colleges, I suppose there was a certain fervor and excitement among the young black men and women who were seeking to learn and to teach. Oh, yes, uh, although I think that the fervor and excitement were greater, shall I say, uh, at the time that my mother and father and were that in was college. When? That, time that was, was in the late 90s, late 1897. Ah, 97. Yes, my father graduated from Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. He followed John Hope to Atlanta, Georgia, by the way. He, f he graduated there in 1902, I believe. Uh, yes, the excitement was much greater and perhaps sort of more, more simplistic at that point because they, they felt, I think, in a way that we were not to feel later that education was the key that would open any and all doors. That was the legacy of the Reconstruction period in the post-Reconstruction years uh, when, for the first time, education was made available to Negroes. Yeah. Uh, they certainly felt that it was the answer, you see, to everything. Yeah. Uh, but even even when I was at Fisk in the 1930s, there was still a, a, an excitement and a thrill about learning and about uh, about the the development of one's intellectual powers. Uh, and uh, I don't believe that um, we had the feeling that that would open all doors, but we did have the feeling that that was something terribly important, even for its own sake, and that it certainly would facilitate our becoming uh, adjusted and uh, making a contribution to a life in the United States. Uh, and so after I left uh, Fisk with a graduate, uh, after having graduated from Fisk with an A.B., I then went on to Harvard. Uh, I went to, to Harvard at the, in the very pit of the Depression. Uh, my father was uh, a lawyer, a struggling lawyer who's whose clients were, were, were without any income at all, so we didn't have any income. And this Professor Currier, uh, having absolute confidence in me, uh, borrowed the money at a Nashville bank and gave the check to me and said, now you go on to Harvard, which I, which I did. I'm thinking of an interesting irony here in history, too, this fervor, and certain teachers like Currier and yourself and yet American history and race. 
and we have to go back to beginning uh, the obstacles that were there too. Yeah. Well, well, uh, well yeah. let me let me yeah. mention one sure. obstacle because it's so interesting. And that is that uh, when I was in Harvard as a graduate student, um, I um, I decided to do a dissertation on free Negroes in North Carolina before the Civil War. Now this meant that I had to go to North Carolina to uh, do the research. Uh, and I, I went there in the spring of 1939. I discovered upon arriving and talking with the director of the archives that when they built the archival repository, they did not have in mind the possibility that any day or that someday a black person might want to do research there. So they had no facilities for me. And he was very frank. The, uh, the, the archivist was very frank in saying that there were no facilities. He said, but uh, if you give... Whites only. Yes, whites, only. whites only. No, I could not sit in the search room, that is, in the, in the, in the, in the place where you did the research. I couldn't sit in there. And he's, he was very gracious. Or he, or he felt that he was very gracious. He said, if you just give me a week, I'll make some arrangements. Mm -hmm. And um, in a week's time, I went back, and he indeed had uh, removed all of the all of the materials uh, that were related to the museum. It was a museum as well as an archive. He had moved, removed all that material from a room, and had put a table and a chair in there, and that was my search room. And he gave me a key to the stacks where all of the manuscripts were, going back to the 17th century. Uh, Assuming, of course, that I would not, that no page, no person working, bringing out the document would bring it to me. So I had to go for mine myself. I continued to do that until the whites who were doing research protested because they did not have the same privilege of going into the stacks and looking up their own <laughs> materials. And they, 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 they got to the point where they could not bear the sight of my coming out of the stacks with just a, 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 a cart load mm -hmm of these goodies, you see, which mm. I had picked out myself and would take to my own private room and do my research there. And they protested finally, and I, my, my key was taken from me. And then, a strange quirk, those same young white men and women who were presumably not to serve me, then were forced to serve me, forced by the circumstances of the, of the white researchers yeah. Uh, saying that I could not go yeah. in you know, the stacks anymore unless they were also permitted to go this in the is stacks. There's a marvelous paradox here. And of course, that I can think of no better example of the madness of racism. You know, I mean, the stupidity and the absurdity. Because there's, there's irony here throughout. Yeah. So finally, yeah. the young white pages had to serve you because your white colleagues who the researchers didn't like you going in the stacks yourself. That's right. And so here we have... The or they didn't like it because they couldn't go in the stacks themselves. <laughs> That's really and, it. And so... Uh, and there's one other incident that uh, ties up with all of these things that we've been saying, and that is that W.B. Du Bois had been my great inspiration. I had first seen him when I was 12 years old. He came to Oklahoma to speak to the Oklahoma Negro Teachers Association. And I went, and I was... I said, you know, everyone said, that is the great man, and I had uh, kept him before me all these years, and when I was a student at Fisk, he would come to give a lecture, but you never, you never got close to him. I never actually met him, and even when I was a student at Harvard, he spoke at the Ford Hall Forum over in Boston. I went over there to hear him, but I didn't meet him, and then uh, he came to Raleigh, North Carolina, when I was doing research there. You must understand that uh, in the 1930s, there were very few pe places that black people could even eat or use toilet facilities between, say, Richmond and Atlanta. And you remember that this is the time when Du Bois is at Atlanta, uh, as we heard on that record. Uh, and um, he would travel from New York or from the north to Atlanta. And his stopping place, as was the stopping place of all of the blacks in the East who were traveling, was this little hotel and uh, where I did not stay, but I would have my meals every evening. And I went there one afternoon, one evening, after coming from the archives, having done research all day. And I was having my dinner. When I looked across the room, and there was W.E.B. Du Bois sitting in there. And I said, well, this is a magnificent opportunity for me 
to meet the great man who, after all, is just sitting, he's also alone. Uh, I knew he was something of a formidable character, and I had to get up my strength and my courage and my nerves to go across the room to meet him, but I did. And I, as I approached him, I thought of all of the things that I could say to him that would, that would appeal to him and that would make him associate himself with me in some way. I knew that John Hope was his best friend, so I said, Dr. Du Bois, I am John Hope Franklin. And after I let that sink in a while, I said, remembering that he was of the class of 88 at Fisk, I said, and I'm a graduate of Fisk University. And then also remembering that he was the, a PhD from Harvard, and that he wrote the first volume of the Harvard Historical Studies, I said to him, and I am a graduate student at Harvard University, and I'm here in Raleigh, North Carolina, doing research on my doctor's dissertation. And I waited for him to say something. And without so much as looking up at me, he simply said, how do you do, in that voice that we heard a few minutes ago. And he said no more to me. And I sort of backed away and went back to my side of the dining room. Crushed. And uh, I, at 24 years old, I, I certainly was not encouraged by what he said. I did vow, though, that day that if I ever became a professor myself, if I ever was a busy person, shall I say, I vowed that I would never be too busy say a word of encouragement to a young person uh, or, to, or to do something in their behalf that they wanted me to do. That's funny. So this is what you remember. Therefore, you, when a young person comes up, no matter how you know, impertinent it might seem or irrelevant, that, that moment is important to him or her. Right. And you, you're aware of that. At the same time, you're also aware of, of Du Bois' personality, that this is the way he was. This he is couldn't the way help he himself. Was. Yes, and yeah. uh, when we became friends later, uh, we lived in, both lived in Brooklyn, New York, when I was chairman of the Department of History at Brooklyn College, and he was living in Brooklyn Heights. He was very warm and cordial, and he frequently would invite uh, my wife and me to dinner, with the understanding always that he would not, we should not return the favor because he wouldn't go out yeah. to dinner. And we, we became very friendly. And I told him about this, inc this incident uh, one night. It's still, I remembered as vividly as though it were that but he day before. But he doesn't Of course not. And he, he said somewhat apologetically, he said, well, you know, I, I'm almost always preoccupied. And I, 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 not only am I disciplined, but I am distant. And that's for the yeah. purpose of focusing on the work that I have to do. And, uh, and that came, I suppose, about as close to an apology as he ever was to make. Dr. Franklin, before I ask you about this remarkable series of Jefferson lectures, uh, you mentioned Dr. Du Bois and you mentioned casually the Niagara Movement. I'm sure that many listeners don't know about this, and it was a key moment, I think, in, in black yes. history. Yes. Would you mind just... Yes. Um, well, you, one must remember that the 1890s, sometimes referred to as the dismal decade in the history of black people, was a period of enormous violence and maladjustment, of disfranchisement, of segregation, and so forth. And um, two of the most important decisions that the Supreme Court handed down, two of the most important adverse decisions, were handed down in the 90s. The, the decision of Plessy against Ferguson, uh, which set up the principle of separate but equal, and the other case that is not nearly as well known, but also terribly important, coming against Georgia, coming against the Board of Education in Georgia, which was, uh, which was an effort on the part of a black parent to secure secondary school education for his daughter within the state of Georgia. And the Supreme Court of the United States in 1899 said that the, the, the state or the county of Augusta, Georgia, was not obligated to provide a secondary education for a black child simply because it had provided it for a white child, that there were opportunities, not public, but there were opportunities there or somewhere else for a black child to secure an education, and therefore uh, the, the, the county could not be forced or required to provide it. Now, that's the sort of background, and I must say that there, in the in the decade of the 90s, there, was, there were only two years when the lynchings of blacks 
dropped below 100 per year. So this is the background against which Dr. Du Bois and his friends decided they, they must do something, they must do something to try to uh, dramatize and call attention to all of America and all of the world, as a matter of fact, the plight of the Negro people in, say, 19, 3, 4, and 5. So in 1905, Du Bois, along with some other colleagues, called a conference of young black men to meet at Niagara Falls, Ontario, on the Canadian side of the border. Uh, and they met there for several days and drew up a series of manifestos condemning segregation, condemning discrimination, calling for equality of treatment in all areas and so forth. And that begins the Niagara movement, which, uh, which will continue for several years. They met again at Harper's Ferry, for obvious uh -huh. reasons, uh, in, uh, to commemorate the, the martyrdom of John, John Brown. Brown in 1859. And they met a few other places. And then it, it, it sort of was becoming moribund, or it did become moribund, perhaps, as a result of, of the rise of a new movement composed not only of blacks but whites as well, which led to the organization of the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, in 1909. So the Niagara Movement really is one of the background organizations yeah. that blends into and yeah. merges with the NAACP. Yeah, yeah. and now I think perhaps a, slight a slight pause, and then perhaps for the second half of the program, uh, thoughts about your Jefferson lectures recently that became the base of the book Racial Equality in America and of course thoughts to us that we had never had before about the Founding Fathers, Declaration of Independence, Constitution and how it affects uh, black people and specifically about Thomas Jefferson. Things we don't know, <laughs> never knew till now. <laughs> so in a moment uh, Dr. John Hope Franklin is my guest, and uh, one of the reasons I've wanted him as a guest for a long time, one of the reasons is uh, now is that uh, the chair, John Hope Franklin Chair History, has been established at Fisk University. And in a moment, we'll resume the conversation. So resuming the conversation with Dr. John Hope Franklin, and you were uh, engaged to offer a series of lectures in Washington called the Jefferson Lectures. Yes. Uh, the Jefferson Lecture is, the, is sponsored each year by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Uh, therefore, it's, a, it's federally supported. Uh, and they began, uh, I was the fifth Jefferson Lecturer, uh, and uh, it's the opportunity that is provided for some American scholar each year to make a statement uh, to the general American public about his uh, views and uh, particularly as they bear on the human condition. Uh, no lecture had been given outside Washington until I lectured, gave the lectures in uh, 1976. And I insisted that if the National Endowment for the Humanities was going to be a national organization, that it must look beyond the boundaries of the District of Columbia. I said that I would give one lecture in the district, but I would give another lecture in Chicago and one lecture in San Francisco. And, uh, and uh, so that there are three parts of the Jefferson Lecture, uh, one in uh, Washington called uh, the, the Dream, Dream Deferred, Deferred and <coughs> the one uh, in Chicago called uh, the, old order. the Old Order Changeth Not, and then the one in San Francisco entitled Equality Indivisible. Uh, and uh, I want to say that um, although these lectures are called the Jefferson Lectures in the Humanities, uh, they are not conceived of, at least not by me, as, uh, as, as, uh, as an opportunity provided to, to heap praise on, on Mr. Jefferson. The praise on Jefferson is in the designation of the lectures as the Jefferson Lectures. It seems to me, therefore, that the lecturer himself is, uh, is under no obligation uh, to, to make any reference to Jefferson uh, if it doesn't 
fit his own subject, and that has been true in some cases. In my own case, since I was discussing racial equality in America, uh, it was incumbent upon me to give some attention to Jefferson because of his own position with respect to the whole notion of equality on the one hand and his views with respect to race on the other. And even if the lectures had been called the Studs Turco lectures in the humanities, I would have had to deal with Thomas <coughs> Jefferson if I were going to handle yeah. racial equality in America. So I say that because there was, there was some, re some reaction on the part of some people when I gave the lectures that it was, it was highly unseemly and perhaps even un inappropriate for me to have made some comments that were not <laughs> glowingly well, uh, complimentary of Jefferson uh, since I was the Jefferson lecturer, and I don't, I don't see them as well, that. Well, suppose we discuss that very first one, uh, the, the... Dream uh, Deferred. Dream Deferred and Jefferson. Our, the knowledge of most of us of Thomas Jefferson's one of the most enlightened men of the period, uh, uh, inventor, the man who wrote... Musician, uh, musician architect, uh, philosopher. Maker of clocks. Also someone who had slaves, but the impression we've had is that Jefferson felt bad about it, that he would have freed the slaves, but he couldn't at that time. This is what we know. And here comes your lecture that is absolutely a stunner. And where do we begin? His notes on, well, first of all, the, the founding fathers, the very phrase itself was rather, founding fathers and the writing of the Constitution, and, and, the, and the question of freedom as against slavery. That was the issue. Yes. yes. Patrick Henry, yes, the others. Yes. Uh, what we need to remember here is that um, that there was, a, there was a great deal of talk about freedom in the 18th century. And there was a lot of talk about equality also. And there was, in a sense, the implication in the talk that freedom and equality should extend to all people. Now, nothing was farther from the truth or from the minds of the founding fathers than that freedom and equality, freedom and equality should extend to all people. I don't think that ever, I don't think it was a part of their view. Indeed, uh, when they talked about their own selves being enslaved, they were talking about their political enslavement to, to Britain, and they were talking about the desirability of throwing off the yoke and, and, of course, what we see is their willingness to throw off the yoke even if it meant employing slaves to help them throw off the yoke, their yoke, you see. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, it has been said by, by Professor Edmund Morgan, and I think it's certainly true, that independence, that political independence for the United States was bought with the use of slaves. That is, we purchased our independence. And this is a figure of speech, but I mean, because we employed slaves, because we used them, uh, because we made no concession, no serious concession of freedom to them, we, we took advantage of their uh, bonded relationship to our founding fathers and, uh, and, uh, and bought political independence. And, and, and the general view was that, well, <clears throat> the time isn't ripe, or it's, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's not a part of our program, and so forth. And we will therefore postpone that until some other time. It ought to be remembered that there were people who didn't agree, uh, and who felt that there was something terribly contradictory, something incongruous something that was internally inconsistent to hold slaves on the one hand and to fight for freedom and independence on the other. Uh, but it never, it never got to the point of, 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 of enveloping the country and causing, uh, causing a, a real movement that would result in, in general independence, a general freedom. 
it did in a few of the northern states, but that's not where the slaves were anyway. Yeah, but I'm thinking of, of Jefferson's own, oh, here was a question of taxation without representation as tyranny needs slavery. And here was Patrick Henry making his impassioned speech. But here was Jefferson writing. And there was a, there was a, a, there was a phrase, isn't that was eliminated, was it not, in the Declaration of Independence? Oh, well, surely uh, Jefferson had, had himself included in the Declaration of Independence a condemnation of George III for having instituted and maintained the slave trade. It's a beautiful passage in which he condemns the king for having gone, sent ships to Africa to import people who hadn't done anything to him and who therefore, uh, uh, and th who therefore the king, of, king should be denounced as guilty of maintaining the slave trade. But of course, when that came before the Continental Congress, uh, the various members of the Congress thought that that was perhaps not a wise uh, condemnation in view of the fact that, that if they secure their independence, which they hoped they would, then the onus of maintaining slavery would be on George, and therefore slavery ought to be over. And uh, they, they couldn't bring themselves no. to accept that. I'm thinking that. about Jefferson's own comments. As a, uh, uh, Notes on Virginia, which he hoped would not be published, but when he knew it would be, he finally admitted. Some of those notes are quite incredible, his comments. Yes, uh, for example, in his notes on Virginia, he, he argues in one place that one of the reasons that uh, you couldn't seriously consider emancipating the slaves was that, um, that, that the many, many decades and centuries of pent-up hostility would explode at that point, thereby creating a relationship between uh, blacks and whites that would result in the destruction of one or the other. And, uh, and, and, and if, since that was the case, uh, you, you couldn't set them free, although you might want to do so. He described it much later in life as having a wolf by the ears. And I'm thinking about this. Are not, says Jefferson, the fine mixtures of red and white, the expressions of every passion, by greater or less suffusions of color, in the one preferable to that eternal monotony which reigns in the countenance, that, that immovable veil of black which covers the emotions of another race. And he goes on to speak of the requiring less sleep and oh, yes. uh, the amusement and uh, more in sensation than reflection and somehow incapable of comprehending the investigations of Euclid, and then comes encounter with the black mathematician, Benjamin Banneker. Yes, uh, those are most uh, unfortunate uh, statements made by Thomas Jefferson that uh, really place him in an untenable position, untenable scientific position. After all, Jefferson, Jefferson regarded yeah. himself as a scientist. He regarded himself as a person who, who would not, countenance a position unless unless it could be proved uh, and uh, and here he is with all these notions about blacks uh, uh, smelling uh, offensively uh, and because of their certain operations certain internal operation of their organs which did that he had no basis for that uh, he spoke of the of the animalistic ardor of uh, of blacks as opposed to uh, a much more much more reserved and uh, and and uh, controlled pursuit of the opposite sex by whites. A little pecan touches the fact that uh, one of the slaves, Sally Hemings, was the mother of Jefferson. It's pretty well acknowledged now the mother of Jefferson's children. Well, it's acknowledged in many quarters, not mm. universally, though. Yeah. I hasten to add. Uh, I'm thinking about when uh, Fawn Brody wrote her book called Thomas Jefferson, An Intimate Biography, in which she argues very forcefully that Sally Hemings was the mother of several of Thomas Jefferson's uh, uh, children, uh, Sally Hemings being a slave uh, on his plantation. Uh, the, there were many people, including uh, biographers of Jefferson, such as Dumas Malone, who took most serious yeah. exception to Mrs. Uh, Brody's uh, argument. Uh, but even Mrs. Brody's argument was not, not really new, uh, although she elaborates it uh, more than any other writer, I think, before her. Uh, 
Winthrop Jordan, in his book uh, <clears throat> White Over Black, had pointed out uh, that uh, Thomas Jefferson certainly was himself a misagent, mis misagenator, uh, and uh, and I, I think there's not really any any serious doubt about it. What what comes clear here is that uh, that Thomas Je whatever whatever the situation is, Thomas Jefferson was very very close to Tyler Hemings as he was perhaps to other blacks, and uh, for him on the basis of his whatever intimate relationship he had, to make the most astounding study, uh, statements about, uh, about blacks, about their physical characteristics and about their physical unattractiveness and about their stupidity and so forth would seem to be uh, most remarkable. And I'm thinking of something else. Later, Jefferson lived to be uh, till what? Eight, 19, uh, he, he died 18, in 1876. 1876. Hey, I'm sorry, 1826. 18, 1826. Nonetheless, there was no retraction on his part. Now when things were beginning, and later on he attacked a uh, political figure, Talmadge, for seeking a free state. He, he called it a dirty Federalist trick. As he yes. no retraction on the part of Jefferson yes, years had, later. That was in 1819 uh, and 20, when, yeah. uh, when Representative Talmadge yeah. from the state of New York sought to offer an amendment to the bill admitting Missouri into the Union so that, would, that looked toward the emancipation of slaves in Missouri. And Jefferson called that a dirty federalist trick, when yeah. as a matter of fact, Talmadge was, yeah. a, was, was, a, was a member of Jefferson's yeah, party. party. And, uh, and, and this shows that Jefferson, even as an old man, uh, had not softened on no. this question. Uh, he was always, let's say from, from the time he wrote the notes on Virginia in, 18, in, in 1782, right on, he was always sort of uh, uh, temporizing mm. on this question. Not now, perhaps later. That's, that was his there it was later. There it was, was his later. favorite statement. Mm. Uh, and he told some young men that, you know, you know where I stand, and when the time comes, I'll, I'll come out with it. He had a, one, of his, one of the young men was a, was a Virginian by the name of Edward Coles, who had bought the revolutionary philosophy and who could not abide the inconsistency between arguing for freedom on the one hand and maintaining slaves on the other. And he told Thomas Jefferson that we can't do this, and we look to you for leadership in the matter. And Thomas Jefferson told young Edward Coles that there's nothing we can do, and what you need to do is to go home and take good care of your slaves. Coles said he couldn't do that. He went home, but he set his slaves free and left the state of Virginia and came to the state of Illinois, where he becomes a very prominent figure in the early years of the history of the state of Illinois and becomes the second, uh, the governor. second governor of the state of the, Illinois. Uh, of course, what's amazing here is the hypocrisy of Jefferson. You're offering Jefferson lectures and what you said, and now you shocked them. One of the most poignant and moving parts of this lecture is the letter, the exchange between the distinguished black mathematician, Benjamin Banneker, and Jefferson, which Banneker calls Jefferson shot, and Jefferson equivocates. In fact, he even puts him down. Well, remember see, Jefferson said here about uh, the, none of these can comprehend the tracings and the investigations of Euclid. When, yeah. And here comes Banneker. Well, Banneker was a, was a very extraordinary man who certainly comprehended the mysteries of Euclid and other mathematical geniuses. Um, he was an almanacker, he, made a, he was an astronomer, and he, of course, he, despite the fact that he was a black man, he helped to lay out the District of Columbia. Uh, and so he knew a lot about surveying as well. Uh, but Thomas Jefferson, although he knew Banneker, and though he, although he received from Banneker from time to time uh, copies of his almanac and other evidences of Banneker, of, uh, of, of Banneker's uh, mathematical and uh, scientific uh, skills. It, it's clear that Jefferson was never certain that, uh, that uh, Banneker was doing that. He, he refers in one place to Banneker's reputed to have done this, mm. implying that perhaps 
someone did it for Banneker. He said the same thing about the black poet Phyllis Wheatley, didn't yes, he? Yes, yes. He, he said somebody wrote it for her. He could not he, accept it. Or he said that the portrait wasn't any good. Mm. But, but he later, I mean, he earlier had said that he was no judge of poetry. Yeah. But he, he could be a judge of a black person's poetry when he says it's, it's no good. Uh, he simply did not, he could not bring himself, it's obvious, that he could not bring himself to believe in the intellectual capacities of black people. Well, it really comes down to, when we come to the Founding Fathers, and Jefferson, the most eloquent of their spokesmen, the most articulate, is that they really were thinking about property, weren't they? After all, the slaves were property. Isn't this what it's all about, really? Surely. That's what it's all about, uh, that, um, that they must, uh, that, the, that the status as property must be preserved. Uh, and there you come up if, if you if you even if you even make any gestures in the direction of their enjoying certain human qualities, then you place in the jeopardy their status as property. You see, and this is why they 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 become so inconsistent. That's why their logic is so riddled with uh, with uh, false. Uh, it's simply because they are they are constrained to maintain the notion that these people are property uh, that they will do practically anything uh, to to make the point. And this was your first of the three lectures, and then there was one dealing with the later time following the Civil War, and one with now. I'm thinking about. Which dream deferred, isn't it? We're talking about dream deferred, uh, Langston News poem. Yes. That you quote, you have a piece of poet in each lecture. And so we come to that period, that incredible period in which reconstruction was betrayed. Uh, that's in your second lecture. Yes, uh, the old order changeth not. Yeah. That is, um, uh, one would have thought that uh, with the end of uh, slavery, and with the promises of Reconstruction, that the order would have changed, that you would have had at long last the changes that should have taken place in the 1770s and 1780s. And there was a, there was it's there was people felt there was a bright new tomorrow. But what do you get? You get. Blacks being driven away from the polls and denied political equality. You get the Supreme Court of the United States declaring unconstitutional civil rights legislation. You get the beginning of segregation uh, in every conceivable form, although there's some that existed before, but now it becomes pervasive. You get discrimination so that it will be argued by a governor of South Carolina that, uh, that at least the, the, the white child, if the state's going to be generous, the white child should at least get $20, $20 a year for, each, for the education of each, and the black child get $5 or, words, or something like that. The point being that, that Discrimination itself became a, 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 a policy uh, of which public leaders were not ashamed. And then, or oh, an intellectual too, at that time, the idea of social Darwinism, those who make it have the fittest to make it, Sumner. So use the phrase, and I think it's quite remarkable, folkways. Uh, what is that? Uh, stateways state cannot, cannot alter, but also he ways. said, inequality <coughs> is the law of life. Yes. And I put down in parentheses, Life is unfair, a contemporary quote by our president. And so I'm thinking, then, now, life is unfair. That was involving the right. illegal a abortion. And, right. and, and someone said, what about the poor young women who can't? And life is unfair. And Sumner, back in the 1880s, uh, inequality is the law of life. So there's the rationalization, is there not? Yes, well, there always is. Uh, that, that's, that's the very essence of Darwinism, you see, that, uh, that inequality is the law of life, and that, uh, that if, you, if you don't make it, that is, if you're not equal, that's because you don't have it. You know, and, uh, you know, don't cry about it. Some make it and some don't. Another aspect we come to today in your third lecture, and there's so much to talk about, and that's the, 
Then there were the pseudoscientists who proved to be clowns, really, about the genetic inferiority of blacks. Here again, how do you explain today some intellectual journals taking people like Shockley or Jensen, or for that matter, Hernstein, seriously and discussing it? Hey, listen, maybe we should discuss. How, how do you explain that? You explain it for the reason that there is sometimes latent and sometimes sometimes not so latent the most serious reservation about blacks in 1979 and that people are encouraged not out of any openness of mind or out in any search for truth they encouraged to clutch at the straws of the shocklers and so forth in the hope that it will give them some justification for views which they hold and do not want to give up. Thus, uh, after all, you can, we continue to have segregation in Chicago and Washington and all over the United States in this year of 1979 as we uh, had in previous years. That is, the principle, the notion here in Chicago, whites will, will flee rather than to associate with blacks. Uh, they might have, they, 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 their options may be greater uh, in 1979, but their views about this question seem not to have changed sufficiently uh, to, to cause them to turn their backs on the Shocklers and the others. Yeah. You know, as you're talking, we're talking to uh, Professor John Hope Franklin, distinguished historian. Suppose we hear near the end of this conversation the voice of someone of little education, a man I met, he was 73 at the time, 1963, on the train to the Great March in Washington. It was a train from Chicago to Washington, and we all rode on this big coach, and I was interviewing people, and among them was an old black man who worked in a sawmill, Louisiana, and he was going to, I asked him why and what he had in mind. Now, this comment he made was before Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. Here's a man of no education, a black man, talking about the very, this very matter. And I've all the time wondered why in the world is it that some people can, uh, one human being thinks that he's so much more than the other, and I can't ever see that. I, I, I just can't see it. I don't understand it. I speak to you and you hear me, you understand me. You work like I work, you eat like I eat, you sleep like I sleep, yet and still, how, how come? That's the thing I can't see. Why is it that they have to take the back seat for everything, everybody come along? I don't understand that. So in this trip, it's something like a dream to me. You small boy in Louisiana, worked hard. What kind of work did you do? Oh, I did all kinds of work. I followed sawmills, I followed uh, levee camps, railroads, uh, sugar farms. I never did farm. I never did work all. Well, I'd work on the farm, like if you had a farm and want somebody to do a little work for you, I would do that. But for me, they ever. Uh, make a crop myself, I never did. I never could see. You work with your hands all your life, work pretty hard all your life. That's right. I was born 1893, May the 16th. make me, uh, this going me that made me 70 years old. Well, it looks like something's gonna happen in your lifetime after all. I hope to see it. As I says, it's a dream. It's I wouldn't put it this way. I said, if you was uh, down and out, and you was longing for a thing, and somebody would come along and punch you out in a way that you could find this, you would feel like a different man, wouldn't you? So that's the way I'm feeling. I feel like a I'm headed into something. I'm, I'm headed into something where that it will be here. I, I will. I will live to see some of the beneficial out of it. 
maybe a day or two days, but I would enjoy those two days or one day better than I have enjoyed the whole 70 years in which I lived. That last part, of course, is overwhelming. That one day. Yes. Yes, well, uh, I think that he might have seen some changes. Uh, we certainly have, have had some um, since uh, that march. Interestingly enough, I was in England, uh, uh, and I did the BBC program on the, mm. uh, the guide to the march on Washington for the BBC television. They were trying to explain to Because you and I met in, the, in Montgomery. And I was going to reminisce. I was going okay. to reminisce about that, that oh, you, in, you interviewed him on the march to, to Washington in 1963. You interviewed me in the Atlanta... Airport. Airport. You remember that. <laughs> uh, in 1965 That's when right. we were on our way to Selma, you That's see. Right. So that... Um, so uh, here, Dr. Franklin, as the hour ends, we're thinking about your lectures. May I just say for the, uh, for the audience, though the book came out in 1976, the lectures of John Hope, Racial Equality America, UC Press, they're available, I'm sure, now. And I think the lectures are... This is part of, to me, the unwritten history. The unwritten history. This is your research, of course. And... and I suppose the last question, where does it leave us now, this moment? Well, it leaves us still searching, still groping, uh, still trying to find uh, a way in which all Americans can live together in peace and in mutual respect. Uh, if there's anything that uh, links us with the beginning of our country. It is that even then, uh, the, the founding fathers recognized this as a problem. They didn't do a great deal about it. They felt that in some future years it should be dealt with. And so this is a part of our inheritance. Uh, and uh, some, at some point, we've got to confront it and say, now is the time we have temporized and equivocated sufficiently, and that we must rethink America's role in the world. And a part of that rethinking is to cease the hypocrisy that has characterized this sort of principal area of American social life. I think if we do, we win the confidence and admiration of people around the world. But until we do, I'm afraid that we shall enjoy or suffer their contempt, contempt and lack of confidence. John Hope Franklin, thank you, and congratulations, of course, on the establishment of the John Hope Franklin Chair of History at Fisk University. Thank you very much indeed.